Oh well. Uh, yeah, there you go. So, anyways, I'm in Job, and uh, I'm starting a little late here, but excuse me. God has asked Job, "Have you considered my servant Job?" The challenge comes from Satan, and Satan is wise. He knows humanity. He says, "Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all those he has? But put forth thy hand." And he will surely curse you. And we could even ask our own selves that question. If God tomorrow, and I have thought this for my own self, if God determined to take everything that I own, especially at an older age, but I would not have enough time to recoup the wealth that I need to live sustenance-wise in old age life, how would I feel? What would I do? How would I respond to God? Would I glorify him? Would I complain against him? It's really a good question for a Christian to ask. Therefore, God grants his uh, desire because God has faith in Job, because he has faith in what God produces within Job. That is righteous faith. Job is a man who is, uh, you could say, a type of what justification by faith looks like. When God justifies a man in sacrifice, at there it was a temporary sacrifice then therefore God says your faith sustains you even through the times of testing. And so he allows Satan to kill, kill the animals, to blow down buildings, destroy servants, and yes, all ten of his children. And yet the scripture says, and yet Job did not sin. The second challenge is from Satan himself again in terms of uh, acting upon God's consideration, have you considered my servant Job? And and Satan says, and you know, put forth your hand to Job himself, not just his possessions. And by the way, it assumes that man loves his worldly possessions more than God, and that's the transition of life when we first get born again. God's more important to me than even my possessions. So then now, here's the other challenge. Put forth your hand on Job himself. Hurt his body in great way, except God says you cannot kill him. Why? Job is a blameless and an upright man, a man of integrity, God says. Integrity is everything to God. How you live your life is important to God. How we act in testing situations. How we even react to when our sin is exposed. Because sometimes, sometimes if you think of it, the sin that we commit, we hide our own selves and we don't have to address it. But when God finally exposes it, and I've had it done with me, I've even had him, uh, had unsaved people reveal my sin to me, which I knew about, but I wasn't really ready to address it. Uh, and he used someone in the world to shame me for a momentary period of time to reveal to me to cause, you could say, like a bitterness type of repentance like Peter did. And yet, his positional place before God is man who is blameless. So at the beginning of Job, we see two major things. God sees the justifying faith of a righteous man. God is willing to use Satan to test that faith in Job. What I would like to do, and I'm just going to read it for you, I want to look at the rest of the book of Job through the lens of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13. 
In other words, Paul says this to the church. Now, these things happen to them. The them there are those children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. But remember, that would, that would also include the few who would actually enter the promised land, uh, like Joshua and Caleb and Moses and his family and so on. Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. Therefore, let them who think, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation, can be translated also as testing, has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Job's experience is also common to us. I'm extrapolating from that because he's a man. We shouldn't be surprised in the book of James. James says Elijah is a man like you and I, right? So no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful. Isn't that the ultimate end of the story with Job and the book of Job? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation or the test will provide the way of escape also that you may endure it. And this is an endurance test for Job. There is controversy over the length of this book. I would say the average teacher, theologian that I've heard over the decades teach this book. It's a short period of time for Job, but in terms of from the week of fasting and prayer uh, and uh, uh, consolation he gets from his friends following Everything in his life being destroyed and also his own personal body being affected. Uh, And the period of time from there at the end of that week to when God begins to restore after the realization of Job's complaint against God, his repentance. God's telling him to offer sacrifice for his friends because they were greater sinners much more than Job. Because the overall assumption of the book is this. If you're experiencing testing... Or if you're experiencing something from, uh, no, if you're experiencing testing and trial and affliction within your life, it must be something that you have done. And that is not always the case. That's the ultimate, that's, that's the assumption we make quickly, emotionally, in the time when the affliction comes. And many, many Christians have probably made that mistake, presuming upon that, what have I done? And then we give ourselves this guilt trip, and it might be simply a test from God to prove the righteousness of God within you. So life is not as simple, that's the point, right? Being a Christian is not simple uh, in relationship to God. When we look at God's test of Job through the lens of 1 Corinthians 10, we see several things. Job's test is no different than any other man's. Uh, just the only difference is time and scale, right? Time and scale. Uh, because of time, I won't say it, but I, I do have a very good friend of mine, an unbeliever to, unbeliever to the end. I have watched, I watched that family farm utterly destroyed after he was boasting two years before his retirement that how he had all this kind of cash, and I know how much cash was in his in his safe. I've had other... Unsaved people boast about that. You know, getting ready for retirement, I got this much cash saved, obviously hidden from the government. Uh, I have this much saved in bonds and all these other things. And he dies of a heart attack after picking peaches in the back of his stand. That whole family was devastated, and the farm was abandoned within two years. The trees, I still drive by it and shake my head 
every time I drive by, it's on the way to Joyson's parents' house. Secondly, God will be faithful to Job while he tests Job. That's 1 Corinthians 10. Job will not be tested beyond his faith, which God gave him in the first place. God many times brings us right to that edge. That's where we learn. If he gives you comfort in your testing, and you can be happy in your testing because you're eating well, and there's no stress on you, it's going to mitigate the test. God has already planned the way of escape for Job as well. So we may endure the test. From 1 Corinthians 10, we see God knows Job's limits. He, and he tests Job, or tests him accordingly. The test will reveal Job's righteous faith and God's righteous love. I love the text. When Job is conferring with one of his friends, he says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. That's what we put on in relationship to living a life of faith in the midst of testing in a lifespan. Why would God test people he loves? Question. Anybody got an answer? He wants to grow us to be more like Christ. Amen. That's um, Romans chapter 12. No, Hebrews chapter 12, right? That's the discipline of the Lord that that the peaceable fruits of righteousness might come out of you, right? What else? And didn't he test Jesus in a manner that don't you love that you know the high priest our high priest does not ask us to do more than he wasn't willing to go through himself in his humanity upon this earth that's amazing here's an example in John chapter 6 verse 5 and 6 <clears throat> he says to Philip you know, this is in the context of one of the two places where the feeding of the, I believe, what, four and five thousand? Is that how the numbers go? I always get them mixed up and mishmashed. But he says uh, to Philip, he says, where are we going to buy bread that we may eat? Now, here's the living bread to come down out of heaven. Asking Philip, where are we going to get bread? Right? And this he was saying to test Philip. For he himself knew what he was going to do. And that's Job. Job just doesn't know it. He doesn't have the reason or the or all the wise answer because he doesn't see the scene in heaven. He doesn't see the challenge that God gave to Satan. He doesn't see Satan's response to that challenge and his assumption that only men serve you because you put a hedger on them and you're comfortable. That implies also, too, that God never wants his people to be too comfortable. If you ever think, I I marvel, I sometimes think about this as an elder. And being an elder is sometimes more like I'm a fireman putting out small little fires on a semi-regular basis. I was going to say, God made some of us, not everyone this way, because not all parents, but God made parents some of the way to let us know that we're going to be uncomfortable. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the church is constantly being tested. And I even said to Mark this morning, I, I marvel that, that and Mark and I have been engaged in this church for a long time now, and, and I marvel that this church still stands as a witness 
and the glory to Christ because not of what we've done, but the only thing he's required of us is to be faithful in the midst of the test within the context of this corporate body. Have we been faithful? Do we put on righteousness and have it clothes us? A sinful church, sinful churches do not last long. They just do not. That doesn't mean we're not sinners. It just says a sinful church does not last long because they're not putting on righteousness. Now, the result of Jesus' feeding of the multitude, of course, was 12 baskets, uh, 12 baskets of fragments of bread. So he multiplies and multiplies right in front of Philip when he tests him. And he will multiply for Job as well. When Job is, and this is a famous, probably half of you have it from, for uh, memory verses, when Job is, um, uh, in the very beginning of the book, when he is, when God, I should say, is done permitting Satan to do as much as he's allowed to do, uh, Job, after, you know, sitting in with boils on his body and, and just abject misery, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I can only tell you how many times I've said that with the crop as a farmer. And you may have your own other circumstances, whether it's a job, right? You may have had a job said, that job didn't last very long, right? What am I going to do now? Got three kids at home. I need money soon. Not much money in the bank because three kids are expensive. What am I going to do now, Lord? Right? God is overabundant in giving us what we need in our time of need. But we do not and should not complain. And you could say, as prosperity preachers do, imposing themselves upon God, saying we deserve it. It would be easy to blame Satan for, proving of, for the proving of Job. God said to Satan, this is a pretty complex statement in the book as a whole, you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. How do we even grasp that in the heavenlies? Job doesn't even know God made that statement. How is Satan inciting God? Can God even be incited? Because we know that God even knew the incitement before the incitement was made by the person of Satan himself, right? He's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. So, the mind of God, there's a, there's a stopping place for us in just bowing down in worship and exalting Him for who He is because His thoughts are not my thoughts and my ways are not His. Especially in affliction. I found it interesting that Pat, because God is working providentially all the time, February 5th I'm doing this, a sermon on uh, Psalm 102 on uh, the prayer of affliction. It's the first place we run, man, because I don't have all the answers in my affliction. The question is, is Satan so powerful that he can manipulate the will of God? Absolutely not. But what his charismatics have chosen? The devil made me do it. Right? The devil made me know they don't realize how offensive that is to a sovereign, holy God who's the creator, and that even includes of Satan himself. Right? It's offensive to God to and even that, think that. And that's a, an affront to the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. I mean, it's... Absolutely. 
Does God use Satan for his divine purposes? Absolutely. We see it actually fleshed out uh, during the um, uh, taking of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. We see it the taking of, of Judah uh, in terms of the period of history over that 500 years from the beginning, so 722 to 586. And so we see that, and that's not counting Egypt and so on. But we see God using the nations to raise up, then to purify a nation for itself. As Peter says, right, quoting the Old Testament, a people for his own possession and a holy nation. Mr. George keeps looking at his watch. He's keeping time for me. We have 41 more chapters to go. Oh, I'm doing well. (laughs) I'm already halfway through my pages. There you go. How's that? Job understood the sovereignty of God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Think of that. Have you ever argued with God? Be careful. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't allow it. He wants your faith expressed even in the greatest of emotion. Even in the fervency of a Davidic imprecatory sense. I am so passionate about children dying. Lord, I'm praying to you. I'm arguing with you. Defend them. Right? I'm saying that I'm not a really big abortion-minded person. Um, Not to say I'm not against it, but what's been hitting me harder lately is this whole thing with this gender identity and teaching these young kids this stuff and sexualizing them. That's just, Lord, and, and my prayers have been almost arguing with him. Lord, do something about it. The children! Right? Oh. And though he slay me, I will hope in him. So God sends the test through Satan's accusation that Job is superficial. A superficial believer. Isn't that relevant for our day and age? I heard a statistic not that long ago that of the of the um, of the Christians who said that they were born again surveyed that it was assessed that only 10% of those who said they were born again were actually born again. We know the kingdom is small because Jesus told us that. Right? In Matthew 6, is it? Matthew 6 for what verse? Or 7. Narrow is the way? 7. 7. 13. Matthew 7.13. There you go. So the continuation of the test. There's a week of silence, as we know. Prayer. Best thing, best thing that Job's friends did for him. He has three mature older friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Mm-hmm. Three men who are convinced Job's extreme suffering is due to sin. And not as an in, a distinct test of Job's righteousness before Satan's accusation. Now we know that Satan accuses us every single day, according to the book of Revelation, right? He's the, the accuser of the brethren. But if you, and this, this says a lot about theology too. If your theology is cracked concerning your Christology and your theology of God, understanding of God, then you will find that crack affecting something along the line, doctrinally, in the future of how you believe about God. And that's why we have so many crazy things going on, because they have not let God be the Lord that He is. 
the sovereign as he is, the one who can do as he pleases, the one who says, what I planned, I will bring about, right? It's not, a, it's not an if. It's a when, it's a how, and it is always an affirmative. What God says, he will do. Case closed. Got a problem with that? Right? But we have Christians who are questioning that in theology, in certain distinct churches. Foundation cracked. Foundations of other doctrines affected. So three men are convinced that Job's suffering is due to his sin. Eliphaz, and I only took a small um, sample size of each one. Eliphaz's accusation comes with more sympathy than the other two men. More than Bildad and Zophar. He says, Behold, how happy! <laughs> I call this the carrot method. And remember, he's speaking to Job. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So you're being reproved, but you should be happy about it. I know it's because of your sin, but be happy that God is revealing your sin to you. That's the carrot method. Now, Bildad does the insulting method. If you were pure and upright, surely now God would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. That's the insulting method. What do you mean, if I were pure and upright? I've examined myself. That actually was an instance that happened with the Apostle Paul, right? I remember the text. But Paul says, if you, if you guys judge me, well, then let it be. But, I, uh, but the only judge that I really care about is God, right? And at the end of the day, that's what it is for you and I. The only, that doesn't mean, though, if there's an accusation. That's why, by the way, if there's an accusation against an elder, it must be two or three additional people. Accusations come all the time. The question is, is it true? For Bildad, it's not true. He also doesn't see the heavenly picture. He also assumes, wrong assumption, kind of like the blind man in the New Testament, right? Who sinned, his parents or the blind man? Neither, right? Surely God would rouse himself and restore you. How can you restore a man that God already says is righteous? He doesn't need any restoration. He doesn't need any restoration. He just needs a faith to endure the test. So now it's back up to the individual who's righteous before God and says, this is not easy, man. Lord, help me. I've examined my life and I don't find any sin. Help me to endure the test. Zophar says, the third man, if iniquity, this by the way is the simplistic method, if iniquity is in your hand, put it away. Another, get rid of it. As if sanctification is that simple. For some people, it's easier than other people. We should never minimize this. The, the, the difficulty and mortification of the flesh. But Job doesn't need to be mortified in terms of mortifying his flesh. It's not a sin issue. So his suffering is not simplistic. Job denies all three assumptions that he is being judged by God for his sin. In fact, there was one there was a great disappointment that he had towards all three of his friends. He says this for the despairing man, there should be kindness from a friend. 
right? Say that again. For a despairing man, there should be kindness from a friend. Not rebuke, not insinuation, not uh, assumption that you are a sinner right off the bat. Right? Mark? I didn't write that one down. I apologize. I know. I know. I usually write them down because I always said that's the time someone's going to ask the question. Where did I get that one from? Come on, Joyce. I know. I know. I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. But doesn't that temper? Doesn't that temper our response to those who are under suffering and affliction? Don't make don't make prejudgments about the person. Find out about them, where they're at first. A man who gives an answer before he hears another is a fool. Right? Stop. Wait. Assess. Talk. Although these uh, discourses, uh, even with the young man Nahu, oh, although all right, there's another man named Nahu. He's a fourth person. Outside of this group, he's younger than the other four older, or three older men that I just mentioned. He says this: If it were not for sacrifice, I'm sorry, um, my writing here. I knew I was going to get messed up here. He was the fourth person. Job held his integrity even with Nehu. If it were not for the sacrifice of forgiveness from Job and from God, I'm referring more to the end of the book. Job would have lost all four of his friends. Would have lost them. And God would have condemned them for sinning against Job. And their struggle would have been greater on this earth. Even more. As we know, Job did not finish his course unscathed, wishing he were never born because the suffering was so great. Job complained to God that he was being treated like an enemy and not a friend before God. Elihu, the fourth man, the younger man, characterizes Job. And this is the interesting thing. Of all his four friends, three older, one younger, everything they say is not wrong. They are righteous men in their own right in terms of discernment, understanding God in a general sense, but their presupposition about Job is wrong. Job is suffering because God has permitted Satan to test him, to prove a point. And it's not about Job's individual sin. Elihu says this, God invents pretexts against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts my feet in stocks. He watches all my paths. That is what he's saying that Job is doing. And Job, and they who say, no, 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 God's not doing that. God, God doesn't invent pretext to the believer. He doesn't. And we can say that to one another as well. God's not inventing a pretext for your suffering. I do think you were more or less referring to Job 16 when you said, you're all miserable comforters. I mean, if I was in your situation, you were mine. And and he says, I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. He said, miserable comforters are you all. Well, that that comes out too when God says, you better offer sacrifice for your friends. Right? The wisdom of Elihu nails Job when he says... Let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. The only reason why I said it the way I did was the fact that we, 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 we put the onus on the friends, but everything that they say is not all wrong. They, again, and we have to go back, 
what's the presupposition of the suffering and it has nothing to do with Job's sin. And, and you will treat your own friends differently. If you think they've sinned, you have nothing, nothing to, to, to actually label that as fact. And then you will keep counseling them in the wrong direction. What is the difference between a Christian suffering because of his sin and suffering by the hand of a sovereign God, we must ask, and not knowing his divine purpose behind it? You know, I think of the three friends as well, the four friends. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of yeah, right. Faithful are the wounds of a friend than than kisses them. Kisses them an enemy. So uh, they're doing their best, but they are wrong, and their presupposition is wrong. It is better to suffer for doing what is right, Peter says, than for doing what is wrong, and this finds favor with God. Job is in the favor of God, even in his testing, God's testing of Job. Think of that. He favors Job. He sees Job's faith in his righteousness. He's seeing him as a man, 1 Corinthians 10 lens, and saying, I will help you endure. I will pour grace upon you, but you must endure the test. God finally speaks to Job in the whirlwind and in the uh, storm. Starting in chapter 38, God responds to Job. God has heard his complaint to his four friends. His friends have falsely accused Job. But Job is guilty of challenging God's reasons for permitting Job's suffering. He says... In chapter 9, verse 34, let him remove his rod from me and let not dread the dread of him terrify me. Job says in 10, 1 and 2, I will give full vent to my complaint. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why thou dost contend with me. Oh, that three letter word is a bad word when you're in the midst of testing. Only from the standpoint that God doesn't promise to give you the why on every one of your afflictions. Right? If you need an answer in order to proceed in your faith in this life, you need an answer of why from God, you will be a lonely person. Because God will not tell you the why for everything that happens to you. I remember Forrest Gump. In one way, in one way, um, uh, Job is like, um, and trust me, he's much more much more righteous than his four friends, but the picture I couldn't get out of my head. Um, Lieutenant Dan, remember t- Lieutenant Dan, right? Job had saved his friend Bubba Gump. And he saved Forrest Dan, by the way, who got shot up badly in his lower uh, abdomen and he lost both legs right up to close to the hip. And he was cursing him up and down. Eventually, Lieutenant Dan shows up when Forrest Gump literally bought Bubba's or bought a shrimp boat like Bubba uh, advised, right? And it's this clunky old thing, and it's it's literally when the storm comes in, it destroys the shrimp business. Every boat that was in dock is destroyed. But Forrest Gump, this very humble but very not quite all there guy, is in his shrimp boat in the middle of a hurricane. And what is Lieutenant Dan doing? He's on top of the mast of the shrimp boat. And he's cursing God up and down and you and you and you. And then the next scene is the calmness of the sea. Bubba Gump, I mean, uh, Forrest Gump, literally now has 
the market all to himself with a boatload of shrimp because there's not a boat out there to be found to go for shrimp. And Lieutenant Tan and all of his accusations to God has now come to a place of peace. And when God reveals himself to Job, that's when Job is concerned and then eventually comes to a place of peace after his complaints. So, where am I here? The last complaint that Job gave was, I would speak to the Almighty and I would desire to argue with him. There was a point his argument became argument for argument's sake. When God speaks, he does not mix his punches with Job. He just simply gives a knockout punch. You can't compete with me. I weigh 500 pounds. Job, you weigh five. Right? Bang, you're out. Right? The Creator speaks. The creature must listen. In 38, chapter 38, verse 12, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning, God says, and caused the dawn to know its place? <clears throat> Isn't there an awful lot of irony there? Job, you should know your place. The dawn does. Right? Chapter 40, verse 7 and 8. Now gird up your loins like a man. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you really change God's mind on this? The whole point is to test you and for you to come out shining in righteousness and faithfulness. In chapter 42, Job's heart sees God in the storm and repents in sackcloth and ashes. His three friends, three friends must offer sacrifices to God through Job that their sins will be forgiven. Then Job's fortunes are returned through his long life. Double of the beast, double of the animals. He actually literally gives the same number of children back to Job, ten children, as he had. In no way, by the way, God isn't saying, when you finish the test, I will take away the pain and the sorrow. He's not promising you that. This is not a new day that Job doesn't remember the sorrow. It's a new day, live by faith. God will explain all. And if even if he doesn't determine to explain all in heaven, I'm satisfied with God. Because he's greater than I am. Right? We have to... God... And this is a quote in my sermon to come... God has to be bigger than your affliction. Is He? Mm -hmm. He has to be bigger than your suffering. God has to be bigger in this age that we're in, that we're in. And we can't start saying, well, how did He let Satan loose? And now look at Satan, what He's doing. And as probably many charismatics are saying, as if God has no controller. And we must recognize the evil we see God has sent in judgment. I don't have any other answer, but I know that's consistent with your Old and your New Testament. That's a fact. He doesn't have to explain any more to me. I'm going to suffer because of it if I live long enough because of it. But I know I go back to books like Job and I'll read it and I'm saying, blessed be the name of the Lord because he gives and he takes away and I'm still going to worship him. Though he kill me, I will still worship him. It separates the true believers from the unbelievers within the world or the neutral believers 
somewhere in the middle, right? So Job's happiness, or yes, Job's hopelessness, wanting to die that great, maybe, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't put that in the sense of a suicide thought, but we can put that in the fact of the greatness of despair, wanting to die, was not without faith. Remember, complaint and argument with God can still be in faith. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between presumption upon God and, and also seeing God as who he is, much greater than I, the potter over the clay, and so on and so on, and then approaching him from that perspective and having a conversation with him in prayer. Then complaint for complaint's sake that happened in the wilderness and they all died in the wilderness, that generation. There's a difference there. In chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, Job says this, I know my Redeemer lives. This is in the midst of his suffering. I know my Redeemer lives. Even after my skin is destroyed. Can you imagine that? I'm going up. I get a really serious back operation coming up. They want to cut out three vertebrae, put three spacers, and put a plate up against it. And I may, it's possible, because I've talked to many back operation people who have back operations. Not everyone's a good story. There's a good percentage. Now, if God determines to give me pain for the rest of my life, unrecoverable pain, I must take Job's example. I have to if I'm going to survive in faith. Because God's greater than my pain. Skip the operation, brother. Uh, I know. I wish I could. It's 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 coming. So. Looks um, could just give you piggybacks instead. There you go. There you go. But I have to say, even if that worst case scenario happens, I know my Redeemer lives. Even after my skin or my back is destroyed, right? Yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking that even though I die, even if he takes away my skin, I will in the resurrection see him for who he is face to face. And remember, this is a shadow. We don't have it like 1 Corinthians 15. But this is the hope of Job, just as Psalm 16 and David, right? Thou shalt not allow my body to undergo decay. He knew nothing about the resurrection to the degree you and I do. And yet this is our hope. God, you will not leave me alone in this back operation. You will not leave me alone with unsaved children and leave me to go to despair. I will still act as if you will save them. I will still worship you if you don't. And that's what God calls us to. Life isn't easy. It's not a bed of roses. But God is sufficient. A couple questions. We only could take the rest of our lives to answer them. How do we tell the world that all evil in the world is directed and permitted by God? God is sovereign over even evil. Because it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It is. That's right. That's the confidence of the Christian. 
It's interesting, isn't it? If you're an unbeliever, it's not confidence at all. It's just confusion to an unspiritually uh, renewed mind and regenerated heart. Yeah. Unregenerated heart. And it makes them reject God because they don't understand that, uh, that he's sovereign. Yeah. He is. You know, what was the answer God gave to <clears throat> Moses on top of the mountain? Who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. That's enough. Right? That's enough for Moses. He, he doesn't promise us to give us a uh, electrical diagram uh, of a building with all the approved uh, things of that building so that we might say, oh, now I understand. He may only give you the foundation which he has and says, believe the rest of me. Right? He's building a temple in heaven, right? Spiritually, at the very least. Right? We are his temple that's going to be part of that new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. He's going to build the new heavens and a new earth. Right? And wipe away every work of man in the fervent heat. But he's only given us a glimmer. Right? You know, the things that are, are, are the things given to man are, given, are left to man. The things are, that are God's are left with God. Second question. How do we answer the question of why do children suffer and die? Ooh. Oof. Right? I'll tell you one thing. God is sovereign, is true, and will not be sufficient for the unbeliever. Right? Maybe that's the point for silence. I don't know. Right? It's the toughest one I can ever answer. I can, I can say that with a certainty, death exists because of sin. That is endemic, I use the language of the culture, that is endemic within all of the nature of man. People die because of sin. What God does with children, now I know there are preachers, even Gary, I've heard him preach, all children who die, and other, others like Presbyterians, parse that, only covenant children who die go to heaven. And But that doesn't even answer the beginning of the question. Why do people die? Why do children die? Right. Uh, one of the answers to that I discovered a few months ago, and I really, really appreciate this. Isaiah 57, 1. <clears throat> the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their, in their uprightness. So, in, in different translation, it, it makes it quite clear that mm. God takes some people in death to prevent them from experiencing what's coming up. And that's very possible. <clears throat> that's very possible. That's right. Some some interpreters interpret First Corinthians 11 that the church is preserved by God taking away some people who are unrepentant within the abuse of the Lord's suffering. Right. Yep. Brother, I was thinking of Nabil Qureshi. You recall him just a young Islamic. Uh, Former Islamic, he wrote like a bestseller, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and he was in Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And at 38, he got stage four stomach cancer. Yeah. He was dead within a year. I remember that. He died about a year and a half before Ravi did. 
and before all that horrible news about yeah. Robbie came out. That's what I thought of when he thought. I mean, how hard would it have been? I mean, he used to call Robbie uncle. He was so oh, yeah. close to Robbie. That would have devastated him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And who, I'm not saying that's what God did, but he was, in a sense, spared that what might have been even more grueling agony. That's than right. To start that's example. That's right. Even even my dear friend uh, Nate Oliver, pastor down at the Federated Church, I don't think I would uh, be revealing too much because we think of it as Christians in this way in 1 Corinthians 7. His brother, he truly believes his brother was a genuine believer. He said uh, to me when I searched my brother's phone, he says, I was happy to see nothing but scripture verses, Christian songs, nothing. But he died as a drug addict. And it does make you think, you know... There's certain there's certain times God says that's it. You know we do know that He has ordained a number of days. He's ordained a number of months, and He set limits we cannot exceed. Uh, God forgive us if we are the elements for the reasoning of God, which we, by the way, that's in the heavenly courts. We do not know uh, that I would be the initiator of the reason for the shortness of my life. But we can't answer those questions, can we? Nate can't answer the question. He can only speculate from what the scriptures say. Uh, I can only speculate myself about, you know, uh, other people that have died and mm-hmm. God's reasonings for it. Mm-hmm. You know, dying prematurely, children dying, all these things. So what we do know is that there's a lot of questions in terms of what happens in that heavenly realm and relationship in the court of God and what God's determining sovereign work will be. On the other hand, we must be righteous by faith and therefore live accordingly and by the way do not and this is one of the big things y'all end with this this is one of the big things I have seen Christians do they may be righteous because they're justified right by grace they may be faithful because they were regenerated and by faith they believed in Christ their savior but they also may test God themselves by finding answers to the big life questions that's going on in their life and stop going to church stop going to Bible studies and just lead this monastic life at home and say I'm reading the scriptures regularly at home as if somehow the mysteries of God's dealings with you in life are going to be revealed to you at your kitchen table whether with your wife or by yourself Right? No. You will find answers in the temple, as David did, and as Asaph did. You will find answers to much of the mysterious things that happen within you in the fellowship of the saints. And as even Mark brought out, Isaiah 57 1, right? Isaiah 51 7 1 is for us to help us think these big things through. Right? Glory be to God. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We magnify your holy name that even in suffering we can worship you and that, O oh Lord, in that affliction you have a purpose for it for us. We glorify your name. May we, O oh Lord, bring that glory and praise and in worship and in song and meditation and in the service of the preaching of the word. And Lord, be magnified to the glory of your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you.